In May of 2020, I was invited to be on a YouTube fundraising game show run by another true crime program host. Since then, he and I have communicated many times, and we even worked together earlier this year on the Jason Landry disappearance. Today, you get to hear from John Lorden. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is a special episode of Unfound. I'm so happy to have on this very special episode a guy you know from Brain Scratch, Case Cracked, Searchlight, the guy who started Lorden Arts on YouTube, John Lorden. John, welcome to Unfound. Thank you so much, Ed. Really happy to be here, and it's always good to spend more time with you. I'm really looking forward to it. You're very kind. Thank you. Let's just start here. Um... What's a little bit of your background? I'm not saying we have to get into any deep, dark secrets, of course, John, but what's your background and what finally led you to start uh, your YouTube channel? Um, let's start there. Sure. Uh, my background was actually in IT, but growing up in Southern California, I was always just enamored with uh, entertainment. So, uh, like, you know, one of my first jobs out of high school was Blockbuster Video. Huh. And I, I was like, you know, I really want to get into a studio. I want to work at a studio. Um, after I left Blockbuster, I was I was always good with computers when I was a kid. Like, I was, you know, fixing computers and getting paid for it around the age of 15. But I finally got a job where I was the technical support person. And... Um, I just had a great manager that was willing to send me to some training and help develop me. And pretty soon I was the network administrator there. And I was like, okay, now I've got a skill set. This should be it. Like, now I can, you know, get myself into a studio. And uh, that company got purchased and they gave me an option. They're like, well, we need an IT guy, but we can lay you off and you'd have a couple months of severance. And I was like, I'll take the layoff hmm. uh, and, and see if I can make this move. So, I uh, was applying everywhere, and I got a call back from 20th Century Fox, from the legal department to 20th wow. Century Fox, and uh, they needed kind of that same type of talent, someone that was a front, front-line support for all their lawyers, basically. So mm -hmm. uh, went to work there really young, like I was, you know, probably like 20 years old. Uh, worked there for about six or seven years, and there were some cool things that happened. It was great working on the lot and, you know, having a little golf cart you know, getting huh. sets and like that kind of stuff was all fun, but there felt like it felt like there was this invisible wall between the business side and like the creative side. Yeah, and I never figured out how to get through that wall. So uh, mm. I eventually decided, hey, I'm gonna you know take some time off again. I'm gonna kind of try to reboot this. Mm. I did a little acting. I I was taking wow. classes and improv and huh. all this stuff the whole time. So oh. um, and. So I, I kind of took a shot at acting, did a couple commercials, quickly figured out that uh, even though I was getting some money, it wasn't nearly enough to really take care of things. So uh, I went back to kind of the IT work, 
got very fortunate that I eventually landed with Cirque du Soleil on a show that they were doing in downtown Hollywood called Eries. Um, and it was during that, that was a company that, mm. that invisible wall I was talking about yeah, yeah. Was completely smashed. That like they, huh. they were de- all about developing talent and being open about their creative process and seeing how that could kind of cross pollinate their business. Mm-hmm. Just an amazing company to work for. Okay. Um, so when that show uh, was closing, effectively a bunch of the cast was coming to me and saying, hey, we want to do some videos. We want to remember this time. And, you know, we've got ideas for these kind of funny sketches and stuff. And we just started making these backstage videos, which was great to do there because it was like a movie studio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like there was a props department. There was yeah. a sound department. There was a camera department, projections. Like we had access to all this high quality stuff. So um, we started making videos and some of them were coming out pretty good. And I was like, you know what, this, like, I've got to just bite the bullet and say, I'm not going to roll back into IT. I'm just going to stick it out and make it work somehow. And yeah. that meant, you know, uh, getting rid of a car and just like weeding down my lifestyle to something more manageable because Southern California, you can yeah. burn money as fast as you're <laughs> making it fairly easy. You know it. Um, yes. Yeah, so it was really just kind of saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slug this out. We're going to make it work. And thankfully, my wife was very supportive about the whole thing as well. And mm-hmm. I started my YouTube channel. And initially, I put up some of those videos from the Cirque stuff. And then I was like, mm-hmm. well, I want to keep doing what I think I know. And I had all this mm-hmm. improv training. And so I was yeah. doing like, you know, comedy sketches and song spoofs and movie reviews, just kind of playing around with YouTube as a format. What year would this have and been about? Uh, 2013. Okay. Yeah, 2013 into 2014. Okay. Uh, I did. Pr- I produced kind of a um, like a pilot uh, called Showstopper. It was also kind of based on my experience with Cirque du Soleil, and uh, you know I got some lucky breaks here or there. Like you know some other little indie pilot wanted a director and they knew me, so they brought me on. Some other things like that. But at some point, I was kind of playing with the format, and I was like, what am I watching? Like what what's really what am I entertained by at this point? Yeah. And I was getting into um, kind of conspiracy theories. Like I was watching a little Alex Jones, a little David Icke. I, uh-huh. I wasn't like, I wasn't buying everything that they were selling, you know. But yeah. I was just curious in terms of these stories and the realities of it. And then yeah. I started having this thought of like, well, can you prove some of this stuff? Like, yeah. I mean, think about it. If you could take one of those kind of you know, aliens are running the world level conspiracies yeah. and have some form of proof around it. Like that would be huge. Yeah, it would be. Um, You're right. Yeah. So I, that was kind of the mentality that I was going through. And then I came mm. across that video of a woman in an elevator in downtown LA that yeah. had gone missing right. and her name was Elisa Lamb. And that was, it was weird because I, I started recording the episode kind of from the point of view of, is this fake? Is this like a Hollywood thing that's being put on, like the Blair Witch Project? Where, uh, in case yeah. your audience doesn't remember, uh, Blair Witch Project was marketed as a real documentary. So you yep. we were supposed to believe that it was all legit. And then yes. when you got into the theater, you kind of figure things out. Right. So with the Elisa Lamb story, I was kind of feeling that, like, is this a Blair Witch type marketing thing? And by the end of that first episode, 
um, because Elisa had left such a big digital footprint that you could not deny this was a real person. Yeah. Uh, and the content that she had created just like really, really touched me. Like her going through struggling with depression, bipolar disorder, struggling with college, like all, mm-hmm. there was all these things that were just resonating with me as well. And by the end of that first episode, it kind of took my whole perspective of this fun, Hey, let's be a conspiracy geek and kind of look into this stuff. And, and it just took it to a reality of, wow, this is someone's real life. Wow. And she is, she's no longer here. Yeah. And there are people running around with this tape of hers that are using it for ghost stories, basically. Yes, that's true. uh, So I, I kind of went on this mission personally of the same thing. And my, my approach was always, I'm going to be open to whatever, whatever you're trying to tell me, mm-hmm. but I'm going to look into it for myself and then I'm going to make my own decisions. And mm-hmm. that was the approach of brain scratch in the early days. There was all these different theories about Elisa, you know, about, Oh, she said something about an invisibility cloak. Look, you can see someone in the invisibility cloak in that footage. Yes. And I would I just all one this, by yes. one, I was taking those stories and trying to either prove or disprove them. And ultimately it was about kind of debunking most of those stories to get to the reality of, Hey, look, we're talking about someone that's dealing with really hard emotional issues here. And something very, very tragic happened around that. It did. Now, when you found out about her, uh, how long had it been since she was found deceased? Of course, up on the, on the roof of that building. Did you, were you following it right at the time or was it like a month after she was discovered or, or, or what was this? No, I would say I probably started catching wind of it about a year. Oh, a year, year after. after. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because that's really, you know, like the, the video came out and went viral in, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really the afterflow of YouTubers in this kind of creepy pasta area that were taking the video and then making their version of the content yes. from it and all these different, you know, theories that were coming out of that. Yes, and now maybe it'll be a good topic for maybe a little later in this discussion uh, about people like that and you know that kind of segment of the what you may call the true crime community, although I'm not sure we can maybe label it that. That's very interesting. Yeah. So Alyssa Lamb was kind of the thing that uh, kind of put you on the track to what you're doing now, and so that yeah. would have been 2014, 2015, something like that. Yeah, 2015, mm-hmm. right at the start of 2015, right the, official, the official start of Brain Scratch. I was kind of absorbing and mm-hmm. thinking uh, about, you know, the approach on that for a little bit before it actually kicked off. But then yeah. uh, once it started, it was just like there was an instant response and people yeah. were being very clear that they wanted to talk about it more in that kind of real world approach format. Yeah. And once I saw that, I was just like, let's do it. Let's, let's get through this. And, you know, that turned into... 15 episodes or something. Yes. And I, I, I can remember, although it's not been recently, uh, you went to the hotel. You actually went yeah. there and, and checked it all out. What was that like? Um, it was weird. Like there, there's been a few different moments where I felt like I was really pushing out of my comfort zone and, and out of boundaries a little bit. And that was one of them. Like going to a hotel, uh, you're not staying in. Yeah. <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't have any resources at that time. Like literally for me to spend, you know, $20 or $30 would have been a huge deal. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, just to get down there and for parking, like you're, you're spending cash, but uh, going to the hotel and just once again, resonating with the reality of what she was going through uh, a 
I'll never forget just walking down the street and, you know, there's people that you can see that are homeless. There's people that look like they're probably on something. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's one guy that came up and I was wearing a shirt. I think it was a Spider-Man shirt, if I recall correctly. And I don't even know what he said. He said something and just kind of slapped me on the chest, like right on the logo of my shirt. It wasn't, he wasn't being violent or anything, Mm -hmm. but, um, it was just like, it was almost like being kind of knocked in the forehead about, hey, look, mental health is a big issue it down is. here. Yeah. And it, it should be the core of Elisa's story, but her story was pulled in all these very different, yeah. wacky directions. Yeah. Yeah, It's and it is disgusting. It is yeah. disgusting because, uh, you know, of course, something with Alyssa, and of course I do not know about it as much as you do, but my perception has always been that, you know, Here's a woman who actually had problems, and then people are, you know, other people are trying to turn her problems into entertainment. You know, yeah. so they can, yeah. you know, they're not trying to solve anything, not trying to draw attention to, you know, mental health problems and things like that. No, they're going to manipulate it this way and manipulate it that way so they can get views and downloads and everything. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. No, and, and, you know, that was. That's a line that I was constantly eyeing as well. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, because um, I was recognizing that, wow, there's, for, for what I was bringing to the format, what I was bringing to the conversation, people were being drawn to that. And I was constantly checking myself. And I still do, honestly, Ed. I'm sure mm-hmm. you go through this as well. Like, yeah. you know, with certain cases that come to you, it's like, ooh, should, should I really do this one? Yeah. Um, it, it's a constant yeah. line that, that we're watching and I feel extremely fortunate, uh, especially after going through the experience of being on the Netflix show and seeing kind of what they had to do with the story. And yeah. first of all, how long it took them to get to it. Yeah. Uh, like I'm just very proud that the speed that our industry produces at, um, and the, the mm-hmm. lack of like, we don't have to really deal with advertisers too strongly. We don't mm-hmm. have to no. deal with, Mm-mm. corporate entities that are kind of telling us we need your format to be more like this or we need your content to be like that. You know, if, if I want to do a story about a transgender uh, Jane Doe, I can I can do that. Yeah. And it's, it's no problem. And if it right. only gets 2,000 views, I don't care. Because right. Because I'm doing it for the people that care enough about that story to go looking for it. And hopefully one of those people that care enough is someone that has some information and maybe that video actually gets them to pick up a phone and put it in play. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And I want to talk a little bit more uh, about that uh, for sure before we're done. Uh, But so you started this channel, uh, the Alyssa Lamb thing, obviously well-known, fairly popular. Uh, You said you did like what, 15 videos on it or something like that. Um, I do have to ask you, yeah, uh, yeah, when you were done, how did you, of course, with all the popularity of her death, you know, where? how did you decide where to go from there now that this had been so popular? And, you know, Alyssa Lamb types of situations are not happening every day. So how did you decide, you know, well, you know, what am I going to do from, th- from there? Uh, it was really listening to the audience. You know, they were bringing the, the other conversations that they wanted kind of my touch on like I was mm. I was being recognized as someone that was open to all the possibilities it's it's very mm. different when you have someone um, that's kind of just stuck on their particular perspective and kind of mm. pushing their agenda very strongly uh, 
it does it does gather an audience, but you know it's it's not kind of an open conversation. Like my audience was changing my point of view, and they recognized mm-hmm. that. Like you know, if I would put out something in a video, because I'm not an expert in everything, obviously, and there's other people that have tons of different life experience out there. I might hear mm-hmm. from someone about, oh, John. Well, actually, I was down there and I checked this out and I found this piece of the yeah. puzzle that's yeah. different than you thought. And then in an update video, I'd be like, hey, we had someone that kind of contributed this new point of view for me, and here's where I'm at with it now. Mm-hmm. So I think it was that engagement that was really getting them. And I think mm-hmm. that's something that still, I wish YouTube would understand true crime. They don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish that YouTube would understand their tool, like what they're delivering as a tool in terms of a conversation, because I think true crime is perfectly um, positioned to be helped by that tool. Yeah. It's not just a video that gets posted. It's a conversation that goes on below that video where you have additional family members that drop in, uh, other people connected to the case occasionally go down there and comment, and just people that care that have different expertise. You could have someone that's a coroner drop in down there and say, well, actually, this is the truth of, of that statement. Mm-hmm. Um, I mm-hmm. wish that you know YouTube would kind of get their head around that and help mm-hmm. develop that tool a little better. But even as it is right now, I think that's a huge advantage over something that's put out on a streaming digital platform where you don't have that opportunity to really have an ongoing conversation that is focused on the content. Yes, you could always go to Twitter. You could always, you know, try to message a person directly. That was part of that. But that conversation kind of gets lost in the ether of everything. And YouTube saves it. Like there's just this big focused conversation as long as it's being curated well. I, I guess I should thank my community managers right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah, you, yeah, you can do that. Uh, did you ever have any contact with Alyssa's family? What did they say about your coverage? No. It has been that, that's been, that was one of those lines I was kind of constantly trying to be aware of. Like, you know, what would their thoughts be about this? Mm. Like, if, if they see it. And I, I still believe in my heart that if they knew the approach that I was taking with it, mm-hmm. uh, and and looking at what was out there back at the time, yeah. I was trying to be a voice of reason yeah. in a whole lot of nonsense that was going around. Mm-hmm. And was it perfect? Absolutely not. You know, but uh, did it get better as time went on? Yes. One of the craziest things Ed, that I've experienced in this whole thing. Yeah. Um, going from YouTube to Netflix is the Netflix thing focused on my first day on the jump, essentially, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Elisa Lamb was, that was the first case that I'd ever yeah. looked into. I really didn't have that skill set built up a whole lot for looking into true crime. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, around my IT work, I'd done, I had done a lot of business analysis. So I knew about interviewing people. I knew about taking different positions and kind of banging them against each other and, you know, trying to figure out what the truth of those positions would be. But it's a whole different thing, you know, looking at it six years down the road with all the yeah. different experiences I've had now and where that skill set is now right. and realizing, oh, Netflix is going to do something on my first day on the job and actually show, like, <laughs> you know, here's, here's what this guy was doing. Yes. Back. <laughs> yes. So uh, Alyssa's family then never contacted you or anything like that to say, well, you know, this or that or anything like that. No. Then. And I got to hmm. tell you that that was, I had been. I had been contacted by so many different producers over the years that were recognizing there was something to her story, mm-hmm. uh, but couldn't couldn't get.
get that that resonating um, connection to someone's heart, and they were constantly mm-hmm. looking for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that there were several producers that tried to reach out to the family, huh. and it just, uh, you know, the family was just, I, I, I believe they were extremely hurt. I, I think that the mm-hmm. pressure of the attention that all of a sudden was pulled to it yeah. was a lot to handle, and they're trying to deal with the grief of that, and then on top of that, the wrongful death suit, because mm-hmm. they actually kicked off a, a suit. Um, there was only one day that it was actually heard in front of a judge. I was there for it. And once that got kind of smacked down in a very bizarre way, I have to say, um, mm-hmm. okay. you know, it was just like, it was just like the world was, was turning its back on them, but using them for this aspect of this kind of fantastical story. Uh, about the tragedy of, of their daughter. So it was, yeah. I, I I think I completely understand and would probably even support uh, them staying out of the media around mm-hmm. all that. I think it's the best approach because mm-hmm. it's one of those cases where if they would have been interviewed by the wrong type of person, like that could have been exploited in a sure. completely different way. And I'm not just talking about on social media. Quite mm-hmm. honestly, it could have happened with major media as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think their approach on that, you know, we're seeing kind of a similar approach with the uh, Lauren Cho case mm-hmm. as well, uh, where her family is really locking down the information on it. Um, I was actually contacted by a reporter for kind of a big television station mm-hmm. back in Southern California. And, uh, I wouldn't do it because I knew the position of, of her family. Um, huh. So it's, yeah, it's, okay. every case is different. Sure there's is. There's some cases where the family does need to talk up. You know, like, you know there's cases where um, they're struggling with law enforcement. It's been a number of years. They can't get a, a phone call returned. Uh, they sometimes have information that hasn't been made public through the official channels. They want to put that in play. Like there's all these different times where I think it's really helpful, uh, and and ultimately it's it's still up to the family. But I think that they make good decisions sometimes with with doing that. In this instance, how mm-hmm. would it have helped anything? I, it's really questionable. Yeah. Like what what could speaking to Elisa's sister have helped? Um, yeah, interesting. Uh, you know what what could speaking to her parents have helped outside of a very important conversation that quite honestly the Netflix special even skirted and and didn't really take on. And that would have been the conversation of uh, what was she going through at the time emotionally? What did you guys notice? What are the lessons that we can learn from that so that people at home that are watching Mm -hmm. might watch for these triggers or instances and, and not fall into a similar situation? I want to, let's, uh, we'll move that to a little later in the conversation because I want to talk about more into that production and how you were involved. And of course, there was some blowback and everything from that Netflix show that, that you suffered yourself. Uh, I want to come back to that later in the conversation, but I just want to get back to the, the channel in general. So you do this, uh, you've been doing this then, this has been your full-time thing since like 2014 then. Yeah. This that's all you do like me this is the only thing I do. Unfound is the only thing I do. I don't have any other jobs or anything. This is the same thing for you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, 100%. Okay. Uh, although, you know, I've got mm. I've got the three shows on YouTube, uh, yeah. 
two, I, I consider two and a half podcasts because three minute of mystery is kind of on a break for a little bit, but I do think that's going to swing okay. back at some point. Okay. Um, but two other podcasts and yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. It, it's yeah. certainly a full time job, if not a little more than. Sure. How many hours would you say a week, uh, you devote to all, to all of these different outlets? It's, I try to keep it as a normal daytime job. Like, um, I recognized very early on, it was actually looking into Elisa's case that mm -hmm. it was starting to bleed over into my nights. And then, you know, it's like in your dreams. And then you wake up the next morning, <laughs> and you feel like you didn't even sleep because your, your, your brain's basically been chewing on something the whole night. Huh. Um, so I really had to set up some pretty strong limitations around the hours, how I do that, um, spending time with family every single night. I don't really watch true crime content in my spare time anymore. Yeah, like me, I used me, to. me like, neither. Like, yeah, me neither. Yeah, like my, my brain just, I can't, there's no point where I can turn it off and just turn it into, oh, here's just a, a true crime documentary we're going to watch. Like my brain just starts chewing it up and wanting mm -hmm. to go further into it, start doing research on it, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's, it's balance, super, super important. Uh, I did a lot of running kind of initially, you know, like distance running. Huh. Uh, now I play a ton of racquetball. I'm also trying, always trying to keep some, something physical uh, going on right. and, you know, video games and stuff like that. But yeah. it's, it's also, it's not just about the content creation because now it's its own business and there's other people that are kind of working for me in different ways. And sometimes there's something that pops up on the weekend where a family member for one of the cases you've covered needs to talk to you. So mm. it's hard to say that that's perfect as well. I do my best with it, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, whatever... Uh there's, there's kind of this aftercare thing that I also feel responsible for where if I've worked with a family member, we brought them on, we've done an interview, I want them to know that if there's anything that, that we can do further than what we've done, mm -hmm. even if that's just to, to be there to listen to them about something or to give them some feedback on an idea they're having or something, I want them to pick up the phone. Um, and when you get to the point of doing thousands of videos, looking over hundreds of cases, you know, that becomes a, a different level of responsibility and a, a decent amount of time in itself. Yeah, right. Um, do you work from home? Like, for example, the reason I ask that is, many, like, many, like, authors, novelists, uh, they kind of separate their home life from their writing life by actually just running out an office somewhere and just going yeah. there to write, you know, so to avoid the distractions and to not allow one thing to cross into the other. Do you work from home or do you go somewhere? What do you do? I do. I do work from home. I have mm -hmm. a kind of a, a studio set up that I usually only use for work. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, I do have an Xbox down here, like on the weekend, I might want to play some games or something. But uh, my backdrop that you kind of see in all of my shows yeah. will uh, will disappear. Like I, I basically turn it, have it face against the wall, and it kind of helps me tell my uh, like when I walk into this room, mm -hmm. that it's, oh, it's relaxing time in the room. It's not, you know, huh. it's not time to work. So, okay. yeah, and the lights, you know, when the lights are off, like it just, because uh, I've got these big bright lights that blast in my face when I'm doing all the filming and stuff. Right, so, right. A uh, couple, of, couple of visual indicators, but yeah, okay. um, yeah, 
I feel fortunate to work at home, especially living in Minnesota, because once the <laughs> snow starts, you know, getting right. out here is a little crazy. Yeah, you, yeah, you don't want to uh, be venturing out. Uh, I I work from home as well, but uh, I'm not married or anything, so I just live by myself. So I don't, you know, there's no nobody to kind of. Um, there's nobody that I have to separate myself from or, or anything like that. So, and I do all of the recording and, and video, like the live show from the second bedroom I have in this condo that I live in. So, nice. Uh, nice. yeah, so there you go. Um, any, you know, moving on, uh, of course, we talked about a lot of serious stuff so far, but any, maybe a couple little funny anecdotes about doing uh, what you do uh, that you can share. Uh. You know, I kind of thought about that for a little bit. I, not really. It's been uh, my approach with everything has been kind of serious. I guess mm-hmm. you know, one of my shows is called Seriously Mysterious, but that's mm-hmm. kind of my thing. Like, I um, do I have a little fun here and there? Yeah, like the Crime After Crime podcast mm-hmm. was basically made for uh, Danielle Hallen, who's, who's another true crime YouTuber, and myself to be able to just breathe once a month. You know, to just kind of exhale and uh, talk about something that's a little different. We usually do way lighter crimes mm-hmm. over there. You know, uh, mm-hmm. we, we try to stray away from murder most of the time. We, we don't cover murder on that show. Yeah. More of like the kind of Florida man level, you know, type hey of now. story. Something that's, <laughs> yeah, exactly, that's hey now. Story. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, that's really, it, that okay. was an important thing to figure out several years ago was kind of a balance and even uh with the shows that i was doing like we started doing brain scratch um i had a family reach out to me after i had covered uh, a missing person's case that was the brandon lawson case mm-hmm. and yeah once they reached out to me i was like wow i've got to do a show just on missing persons cases and it's where search light came from yes. but then it was like wow the, the channel's getting kind of heavy because we're looking into all these things that are tragic and unsolved. And that's where we said, okay, we need to do a show that's about how these things get solved, which is case mm-hmm. crack. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's yeah, a challenge over the several years of keeping that balance and making sure things don't get too dark, because we, we're looking into really, really dark stuff, I know the feeling. Okay. Any uh, threats, any work that you've done where somebody did not like what you did, something, somebody did not like what you said, and any anything like that over the um, years? The biggest one, I think we're, we're going to talk about a little later. I'll save that for later. Um, mm-hmm. the, the closest that I would say to threats, and they weren't, they weren't like imminent mm-hmm. threats, but pretty nasty stuff actually mm-hmm. came from around the Netflix thing. Right, okay. Um, but outside of that, not not really. Okay. Anybody ever threaten you with uh, in this? You know, of course, this is certainly something I think about for myself. Although I've not had any issues yet, but defamation, uh, talking about a suspect or somebody, and you know, somebody uh, contacting you saying, "Hey, uh, we're going to sue you" or anything like that. Once, and it wasn't related to that type of case. It was huh. kind of in the, um, in my transition of rolling out from the kind of conspiracy theories, and I was still doing a show called Itchy Mysteries, which was reviews of documentaries. Uh, I would throw in the occasional, like, Bigfoot documentary huh. or something like that. Okay. And there was one Bigfoot documentary in particular 
where the guy claimed to have footage of um, Bigfoot grabbing an apple. <laughs> wow. From a tree stump. Hey, big, Bigfoot got to eat too, you know. Yeah, yeah, and uh, also footage of Bigfoot's face, which I think was just an extreme close-up of a gorilla. Um, and I kind of just said that in the review. I was like, you know, I just, I, mm-hmm. I'm not seeing what, what he's claiming here. And uh, all of a sudden I got contacted by someone claiming to be an attorney for that guy and uh, saying that I had to call them immediately or they were going to sue me. Uh-huh. And uh, I was like, I'm not calling anybody. And yeah, I'm yeah. pretty sure that that attorney was actually that guy. That guy, yeah, <laughs> using with a disguised voice, calling himself some other name or something. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, and he was also, I have to say, he was selling trips to go on these kind of big oh, hunting expeditions. All right. So well, I think he was worried that, you know, having that review out there was going to, like, damage his mm-hmm. credibility or something. All right. So Grifter's going to grift, I guess is what you're saying. Yeah. Grifters yeah, are going to grift. Okay. All right, let's. All right, excellent. So we got some background on John. The Cirque du Soleil stuff really sticks with me because uh, I lived in Las Vegas for thirteen and a half years. I worked in entertainment there, although I never worked for Cirque du Soleil there. Uh, I had friends of mine who did, and I saw at least a couple of the shows while I lived there. So when you talked about Cirque du Soleil, that certainly hits home for me. That brings me back to my Las Vegas days. Did you ever go? Being that you were working for them, did you ever go to Las Vegas and watch the shows there? Yeah, absolutely. I, I was okay. the, I was literally the last employee when everything was being shut down. So I had to load up the last of the equipment into wow. a van that had like the show's artwork all over it and drive it back to Vegas. Huh. Um, yeah, Neat. but you know, I've seen I've seen several of the shows out there. Okay. And, I mean, the things they do physically are amazing, but yeah. you know, all the coordination that's happening that's, backstage yeah. with all those different departments. I mean, it, it's acrobatics. Oh, it's it's crazy. I can remember, I don't even know what year it was, 2006. I remember going to see O at the Bellagio. That's the one with all the water. You know, yeah. they're diving yeah. in and the platforms are moving and everything. It's so crazy. Um, yeah. yeah, it's uh, fantastic. But I guess that LA show shut down. They just kind of shut it down. Didn't, was, did it not, did not do well or, or what happened? Yeah, I mean, it, they ran it for a couple of years. Um, the the one of the most amazing things was uh, the music was done by Danny Elfman. So mm. I got to hear that music every yeah. day at work, and mm-hmm. I never got tired of it. It was yeah. such a great soundtrack. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just didn't wasn't hitting quite the numbers they thought. And it was it's a hard sell because they were, uh, like Hollywood Boulevard is seen as kind of a tourist area. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you know people on the city council, and stuff, they, they'll tell you the tourists only go there for approximately 90 minutes. Because mm. there's really nothing that you do there. You walk mm. around, you look at the stars on the ground, you take a picture with a couple of them. Maybe you take a picture with some guy dressed up as Superman. Yeah. And, and you leave. Like, it's just a giant mall. And yeah. um, outside of going, like, you know, Jimmy Kimmel's show films right there. So if you have tickets to that, like, maybe you'll stick around longer. But in general, people don't really stay there for a prolonged period of time. So Cirque was trying to kind of put stakes in the ground there and make it more of kind of a tourist destination. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's a, it's a hard challenge. Yeah. Vegas made for it. Cause people yeah. are, when you go to Vegas, you're staying for at least a weekend. You're there for a couple of days. Yes. So it was just a different thing in terms of selling the show. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. Let's move on to this. And, um, this is kind of, uh, 
the the reason that I you know that uh, I wanted to talk to you and um, one of the reasons of, of many reasons, but we have a similarity in that way back in 2019 that Steve Pankey, a person of interest still, given that it was a hung jury in the Janelle Matthews murder, he of course reached out to me. He reached out to you. Uh, of course, I did interview him. You did not interview him, but. Let's just start with this. How did you actually, how did he contact you? Uh, when did you find out that he was actually a person of interest? Um, let's talk a little bit about there. Let's start there. Yeah, it actually, it all kind of happened like a strange avalanche. Like, um, uh-huh. he, didn't, he didn't reach out to me in particular for getting an interview or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what had happened was I saw on Twitter uh, that Robin Warder was talking about some guy that had gotten arrested. His name was Steve Pankey. Mm-hmm. And I was actually filming at that time with Gray Hughes and Mike Morford. We were doing our show, Three Men in a Mystery. And I just kind of brought it up after we were done recording. I'm like, have you guys seen this? You know, apparently uh, this guy was a patron of Robin Warder. And mm-hmm. I mentioned the name to Gray. And Gray's like, you know what? I think, I think I've spoken to that guy. I think he's left a comment or something. Huh. And uh, so Gray starts looking on his end. I start looking on mine. I didn't have any comments from Steve. But there was this whole hook of um, Robin Warder saying that Steve was also a patron of his. And I was like, you know, he kind of seems familiar. Let me go check (laughs) that. So Gray did find a comment that he had left him. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it was kind of in that same vein. I'm sure you've heard this (laughs) from this guy already. Go ahead. But it was kind of... The, no one is going to understand what happened here unless you look towards law enforcement, something, yes. something like that. Yes. Um, and then I hit my list on Patreon, and I'm like, well, there he is. He's one of my patrons. had been my patron, I think, for a year and a half or something like oh that. Oh, my. Wow. Uh, yeah, and then okay. I was able to click on his profile and see you know, who else he was following, and he was following a bunch of us in the true crime community. Mm-hmm. And so when, what time frame would you say that this was then this, like you said, a year and a half, because to my knowledge, he didn't become a patron of unfound till like July or August of 2019. What would you say the time frame was for you? Um, ooh, I could actually bring it up. Um, let me see here real quick. Because, uh, <laughs> j- uh just to give you the time frame, Janelle Matthews is, uh, remains were found in July of 2019. Um, yep. I interviewed him in October of 2019. He was finally charged with her murder in October of 2020. So it took a year after I interviewed him, if, if that helps any. Okay. Yeah, let me just see. I think he's actually still a patron of mine. Is he? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, he's been a patron of mine since May 16th, 2019. Okay, so this to put this in the time frame, I guess, for the listeners, this would have been right after he said he started getting harassed by police again because that came up in the trial like of April of 2019 when they started coming around again. So right after that then. Yeah. And so he – so, okay, that's interesting to me. Okay. Well, and one of the other things that I found interesting was once I started looking at him and seeing who he was following – Mm-hmm. Uh, there was another creator he was following, and I was like, I'm not, I'm not familiar with this creator. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, 
oh, this is kind of interesting now. It looks like he has removed it since. Mm-hmm. But it was a creator um, that does gun reviews. That's interesting. Yeah, I've not, I've not, I've not looked into in my, any of that, so that's interesting. Huh. Yeah, I've got that noted in my episode of um, Case Cracked mm-hmm. on this case. So that actually has the creator's name. And I don't know if the creator, like maybe they shut down their Patreon and that's how it removed mm-hmm. from him. But that's kind of weird. Everything mm-hmm. else is still there except for that. Uh, okay. Uh, had you, before he contacted you and you finally uh, figured out who he was, had you ever heard of Janelle Matthews and her disappearance, I guess, at that point before? No. 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 I mean, it, it might have been suggested a couple times. Like the name didn't seem wholly unfamiliar, but I hadn't looked into her case yet. It was mm-hmm. really through that. Um, that I had Christy Arnhart, uh, my associate producer, mm. and she's a writer for Case Crack. Uh, mm-hmm. I had her do a little bit of a, a deep dive on that and write up a script for Case Crack on it. Because okay. honestly, like, <coughs> I, I was feeling pretty sick at, like, uh, yeah. I was, huh. I, I saw that he had liked um, someone's coverage on the Maria Ridoff case which is a case kind of similar elements, a little girl that goes missing, there's tracks in the snow. Um, mm-hmm. And it just, the possibility that this is a perpetrator that's using our content to possibly relive any aspect of his crime or something like it, it kind of threw me for a loop. I was a little, I was a little mm-hmm. put out by that. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, I had Christy do kind of a deep dive on it. And then, you know, we recorded an episode where we went through the basics of Janelle's case and, mm-hmm. Okay. I was hoping that that was going to lead to, you know, a, a, a conviction. Like, he had already been arrested at that point. We kind of talked about all the aspects of the true crime community and how he was following us and some mm-hmm. things that he had done and posted there. But yeah, uh, yeah. now we get to mistrial. Yeah, we did. Um, at any point, did you consider interviewing him for your program? Because, once again, m- once again, the way I remember it, the reason he only contacted me is because he wanted to come on Unfound to tell his side of the story. Did that not ever come up in any any uh, communication with him? No, yeah, no, never could. And, and it would have been easy for him to, honestly, like he, he mm-hmm. could have. I have people that contact me through Patreon all the time. I mean, that's yeah. that's one of the benefits. You get to direct message whoever you're following. Sure. Um, so, yeah, no, sure. he... Uh, he did not. He didn't reach out. Okay. Do you know, uh, happen to know if you ever asked anybody else to interview him? Because to my knowledge, once again, to my knowledge, I know that he did like a local interview in the Greeley, Colorado area, but I think that I was the only person, what you would call in the true crime community with a podcast, YouTube channel, that ever extensively interviewed him. Do you happen to know um, anybody else? I think you're right. Is, yeah. Wow. Um, I'm just wondering uh, if he ever did, if you ever heard, if he ever did request an interview from anybody else, being that you did know that he contacted some other people. Yeah, no, no. I mean, even in his conversation with Gray, it wasn't really about him trying to open hmm. up, you know, any, because Gray also has a call-in number mm-hmm. on his show occasionally. Right. So for him to be watching Gray Hughes, like he, he could have waited for one of those particular episodes mm-hmm. and then called in and, and spoken to Gray directly. Okay. Um, so, no, yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why he chose you. I, <laughs> I don't know either. I have no idea either. But, you, you know, I have to admit, though, I had no idea about this. I had no yeah. idea that he had become a Patreon supporter for you 
And in fact, I think the way I even found out about it is it was just, uh, you know, some coincidence or something that I even found out. And now you're telling me about some other people. I kind of knew about that. But even when I interviewed him in October of 2019, I don't think I knew that he had reached out to all these different places. I, I don't think Had you covered Janelle's case before that? No, I had not. No. I, I, I probably ran across it. It's one of those things that, man, I've never heard of her. But then you start right. looking into the facts of it, and it's like, oh, I think I remember this, even though I may not remember the name. Uh-huh. But I was not aware of that, and I think until well after I interviewed Steve in October of 2019. Uh, and I have to admit, I, w- I was a little surprised by that. Maybe I shouldn't be. Now that I think I know Steve bad, better, uh, maybe I, should, I shouldn't have been surprised by that. Um, have you ever, been, uh, just in general, have you ever been contacted in doing your program by person of in, a person of interest in any, anything, whether it's something you actually covered and then they get in contact with you afterwards, or even just somebody out of the blue saying, hey, they're writing things about me. I want to, you know, I'd like to tell my side of the story. Has anything like that ever popped up? Yeah, yeah, a few times with cases that I have covered. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Please, yeah. Uh, well, if you can, uh, you know, you don't maybe have to say the case or anything, but how did that, what, what decision did you make? How do you go about making a decision for something like that? What were the circumstances? Um, you know, I think I would have followed kind of the, the approach that you did. I mean, ultimately, we don't know that that person's guilty or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's an opportunity for information to come out about the case that could be helpful in terms of public's understanding or what types of tips get called in on it. So um, it, I've, I've offered uh, for people that were persons of interest. You know, mm-hmm. I, I would essentially tell them, if, if you guys, if you, you want to come on and, and talk about this, let's set it up. I will absolutely do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't do it live. Which yeah. I do. I did have one in particular that got, that was kind of pushing for it to be live, and I was like, no, yeah. no. Yeah. But right. uh, you know, I'm I'm known for like I really my editing touch on any interviews I do is almost non-existent. Like yeah. outside of technical issues yeah. or things at the end of the interview where the person's like, "Ooh, I really shouldn't have said that," or you know, law enforcement asked me not to not yes. to divulge that. Um, yep, me too. But, yeah. but for POIs, um, no, I would absolutely, I would, I wouldn't have any problem bringing them on. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, there's, you know, they're innocent until proven guilty, and if they have some aspect that needs to be talked about, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd be up for that. Honestly, before this year, I wasn't. I mean, I had done interviews all through um, the years, but this year in particular, I'm focusing on cases where the families are reaching out to me uh, in particular. So the number of interviews that I've done has gone up uh, this this past year. Okay. Uh, you said a couple did contact. Did you did you do those dinner interviews? Did you not do those interviews? Um, they wouldn't do them. They wouldn't do them. Oh, okay. So they they contacted you, but then they wanted to do them live, and you said you weren't didn't want to do that, or what? What were the circumstances? Well, that was one. Okay. Yeah, that was one in particular. There was another that was like, you know, you're creating a lot of grief for me, and like I'm really sorry mm. about that. We can clear it up if you guys, if you just want to come on and, yeah. and talk about this. And and ultimately, those conversations, even when you try to press into it, like, oh wow, I'm really sorry to hear that. What's going on? The details that were coming out about the grief that I was supposedly causing them was stuff that was already going on before I had even covered it. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, okay. it's. 
but you know, with YouTube, you have to be careful about who you name and ultimately mm-hmm. the general rule for me is if they, um, if they were named in a major publication, uh, in a paper or something like yeah, that, yeah. then I'll go ahead and, yes. and be fine. But if they weren't, uh, named in that major publication, like even if I'm doing an interview with a family member and they want to bring up some people, uh, if that person has not been named in public, we don't. We will always use mm-hmm. aliases uh, okay. when describing them. Okay. All right. So you've had an opportunity to do that. Just didn't come together. And I, you know, and I, what you're saying there is familiar to me too. Some people have contacted me after, and uh, this is very popular. I'll get an email. Well, your guest. They lied about me. They told me they, they were lying. This wasn't, you know, and then when I asked them specifically, well, what did they lie about? I never hear from them again. You know, I want to yeah. come on and tell my side of the story because your guest lies. She lies. She doesn't know what. And then when you, you know, say something like it's just amazing how that just kind of shuts them down. So maybe uh, my experience maybe has been similar to yours. However, Steve's panky is Steve's uh, situation is still a unique one. Uh, for five years of doing Unfound, the way that all happened. Okay, um, did you follow the did you follow the um, the trial as it was going on? Being that you did have at least some slight yeah. contact with him, what were your impressions as it was happening? Uh, it was, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, <laughs> the, the information that that came out uh, with his ex wife. You know, mm. taking, taking the stand, talking about the uh, the car that just caught on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, him asking her to read the articles about Janelle to him over and over, the same articles up to three times. Yes. Um, there was I was I was just watching because uh, basically we set up Google News alerts on anything that we cover on the show, and they get sent over to me. And I was mm-hmm. watching day to day, going, "We're getting closer. We're getting closer." They're not going to have any problem here. And that's why I was just, it was a really big surprise to all of a sudden hear that uh, it was a mistrial except for the fourth count. Is that right? Uh, so you're saying you were surprised it was a hung jury? I was. I thought, huh. I thought especially off of the information from Angela Hicks. Like, I, I was mm-hmm. just like, this, this is, I mean, I, I knew, I knew it was tough in terms of the physical evidence. Yeah. Um, very but circumstantial. Like, at what point is it even circumstantial? Like, it was so abundant, and um, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I have to admit, I was not surprised at all. Uh, and I don't know. It's maybe because uh, I actually interviewed him, maybe because I was there or whatever. But um, and then I did get interviewed by a blogger after I was uh, done, like on that Friday night before I came back to Florida. And he was like, said the same thing. He was like, man, this feels like, this is like a hung jury. And that was only like day eight of the trial or something. Yeah. And it's felt very muddled, even though, uh, yes, his ex-wife had been on the stand and things. But I think you bring up a good point that the physical evidence w- was light, if to the point of being non-existent. Uh, you know, they couldn't put him on that street at that time in that very specific time frame of that hour. No DNA on her body when she was eventually found. That hurt. I think that really hurt hurt the case. Now, obviously, some people thought he was still guilty just because of these other stories that you've already mentioned. But uh, it it just sounds to me that some other jurors wanted some more physical evidence. If you know, yeah. You know, if well, I'm I mean, 
knowledge of the crime that wasn't given publicly. Like, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's so many pressure points of the conversation. Even in the closing arguments, it's weird because it's like um, his defense attorney agreed in large part with what the prosecution was saying about, yeah. like, you know, this guy lives in a world of conspiracy. Yeah. He, he lives in a world of paranoia of paranoia and he even said that you know he thinks the police departments are out to get him that they've got some kind of vendetta it's probably not accurate according to his own attorney his attorney literally said that mm-hmm. so if yep. it's not accurate that they're just out to get him that they've got a vendetta why are you guys sitting in court talking about this <laughs> <laughs> yes so yeah, and, and in fact, you know, his attorney bails out. So <laughs> yeah, uh, and if you even if you go back to the um, the forty eight hours episode they did on Steve back in March of this year of twenty twenty one, he even said in that interview that yeah, Steve likes to talk. <laughs> you know, that's why he wasn't the lawyer wasn't allowed to talk to anybody because he does like to talk, and he does like. Well, but Ed, do you think that the information about the rake? covering up the footsteps Mm -hmm. is that something that someone could just logically come up with or do you feel like there was some some trick of information out in the media somewhere because the other thing Mm -hmm. is you know back in the 80s you know you've got all these little newspapers and stuff not all of them you can find online digitally like is there some possibility that information got leaked in some way and he just knew about it he was repeating it uh, I'm going to be honest with you, John. Uh, I I am open to the idea that one of the, the police officers that when he did go down and you know volunteer himself, he, you know infused himself into the case. I'm totally open to the idea that somebody at that time in early 1985 right. slipped loose, you know, had loose lips about something like that. I'm totally open to that. I think because the reason I think I'm open to that is because I just don't think they took him seriously at the time. So they didn't yeah. mind telling him something when they thought, well, this guy lives two miles away. He sounds a little kooky, you know, everything. You know, what's the harm of telling him something like that when he probably didn't do it? And then as he can, Steve continued to act like he did up until the present day, I think then that, that kind of, um, was then viewed in retrospect as a mistake. I think I, I, I'm open to that. Um, once again, just from my experience of, you know, police officers not um, taking disappearances and things as seriously, even though it was a young girl, even though at that point it would have been a few weeks, you just don't know. Um, you know, to me, uh, a much better angle, and I've said this on the live show, and I've said this uh, since in other places, is that I think the better angle that the prosecution should have gone with is that it's obvious, if you listen to the interview that I did with Steve, it's obvious that he did have some type of prior knowledge that Russell Ross dropped Janelle Matthews off. If you listen to that, he says that he found out like seven days later. And I said, well, I went back and looked at every news article from that time. Russell Ross is never mentioned. So how did you find out about that? He claims, well, it must have been on the news or something. Well, you know, news stations save their stuff. The police could go back to 1984 and into 80, you know, whenever, and check that and see when when this was covered, her, her disappearance was covered, was his name ever mentioned? That's what I would have done. I think that that would have been a better um, 
thing to do than, you know, than hinging everything on these footprints with the rake and everything else. My opinion. Yeah. E- easy for us to talk hindsight 2020. Um, so I, I don't know, and I and I will admit, and I think like my assistant Cherie knows, is that I still have serious doubts whether he did it. I'm just getting, I'm just being honest. Everybody knows this. I'm not revealing this. You know, this is not news to anybody. But so, um, but it's interesting to get your assessment of it. Once again, your experience, you at least tangentially being connected to Steve in a way, and having your insight. So it's interesting to me that you watched all of that and thought. Man, this is, you know, he's going to be convicted of this. It's very interesting to me because we have a lot of the same experience. And I come to well, one I conclusion also, and you come to the thinking. I was also thinking about the lens of being a true crime junkie, them referring to him as a true crime yeah. junkie. Yes. Uh, back in the 80s, that, that's a very different thing than it is now. True. Like, now, yes, you do have super fans kind of of this yes. information that yes. could do something like this and interject themselves and admittedly you know uh, Janelle's disappearance I'm sure created a, a ton of media and why did that happen mm. um, well hopefully you think it's because people are looking to get help and they're mm. helping to publicize the case but obviously uh, you know true crime had been it's been reported on forever and, yeah. and they know that it's a, there's an entertainment factor for the nightly news reporting on a story like that yeah. but you know to develop someone at that point in the 80s in particular to be known as like no one would go around that that i can remember in the 80s and say oh i'm really really into true crime like, yeah that, that yeah that's yeah yeah i think that that term did not start probably until the internet started yeah yeah so you know maybe yeah, even so. sometime after that you're probably you're you're probably right about that even though maybe books that were written about crimes back then are now in the true sure. crime category but I don't think that they that, that true crime category of book or whatever existed back then. So you're probably you, you might have had someone yeah. that says I was a H. H. Holmes fan, or you know, like yeah. you know, uh, I'm really into Jack the Ripper or yeah. something like that. Yes, but I, I'm a true crime junkie. Like I'm someone that's just following a random missing persons case, or not random. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's from his neighborhood. You know, it's mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Like it's weird that to use that as defense through the lens of sitting in 2021 is one thing but considering back then like i don't i don't know yeah that's interesting that's interesting you look at it yeah. that way i hadn't considered that that is interesting okay all right so i guess you know i'm thinking another trial is going to happen I, I it sounds to me like they're going to give it another shot of course steve's going to have a different lawyer but um <sighs> You know, yeah, they've. Uh, I think they just announced that um, they're giving them six months for the new legal team to go through all the materials. So we won't wow. know for sure, I guess, about next steps until May of uh, 2022. Yeah, so maybe I'll be heading to Greeley, Colorado again. <laughs> so we'll, which we'll just have to see. Okay, let's move on to some more, uh, more general topics. Um, uh, and as, as everybody knows, uh, when I do interviews, I, I type out these outlines uh, for the guest. Uh, so we can make sure we don't miss anything. And so the next thing uh, on the topic, uh, on the outline is, in your opinion, John, um, where are we? Where is the true crime community? What is the current situation? Where are we right now? Have things progressed since Serial happened like seven years ago, which in my opinion is probably what put true crime podcasting on the map? You know, where are we right now, in your opinion? Um. I, yes, I do think things 
has progressed. And then in terms, you know, obviously I'm much more focused on YouTube yes, as, as the of course, medium. Of course. Things have kind of regressed as well. Um, they, they progressed in terms of people starting to take the conversations more seriously, starting to treat the subjects more seriously, um, kind of getting away from that era of creepy storytelling and, you know, mm-hmm. spooky music underscoring everything and uh, turning into people just having conversations, sitting on their couch or in their bedroom, talking about something that they're very passionate about trying to help someone else. Um, unfortunately, it's kind of overreached and there's people that now see that and go, oh, that's super simple. I could do that. You know, I've got a couch. I've got a bedroom. I've got a camera. Um, so there's varying levels of quality when it comes to the research in particular. Um, and then there's other people that are trying to kind of fuse it with, um, like in podcasts, they have the whole like wine and crime thing, which I know is still actually kind of kicking around. Like it's a whole subsection of, you know, looking at these crimes, usually with some sense of humor and, yeah. you know, talking about your alcoholic preference kind of yeah. mashed together with it. Um, we're seeing it in the YouTube space in particular, just kind of drama channels, like channels that are going after each other for no good reason. Um, it seems to be coming up a lot with the, the live stream true crime community. And it's, I, it's really, mm-hmm. it, it just it doesn't feel helpful to the actual no. cause, to the cases that they're talking about. If, you know, I'm watching a live stream and, and for the first 30 minutes they're complaining about some other guy on the other side of YouTube who said something about them or, you know, I, and, and honestly, I know Gray even falls, falls mm-hmm. in, he gets trapped by this stuff a little bit. Mm-hmm. I've always told him like, great, just, more of this stuff. Um, but it's hard because, you know, you've got someone else that's popping off about you some, on some other corner of the internet. I get it. Yeah. I get it. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so it's the problem is there's varying quality. And then in that, uh, you might have families that are reaching out and they don't know the difference. No. Like they don't, you know, they don't know <clears throat> this creator from that creator. Um, and ultimately, when I go looking for cases that I'm going to cover, one of the things I'm proud of is to bring a case to YouTube that isn't on there yet because YouTube is the second biggest search platform in the world. Right. Anyone, you know, if yes. you're looking to fix your toilet or if you're <laughs> looking to learn about something, you're going to YouTube. Yes. Um, so I see it as a really helpful thing for these cases that don't get a lot of coverage. Maybe there's just a handful of local articles that got no television coverage, no national level coverage get them on YouTube. Like that's, that just seems like a smart thing to do. But if I go searching and I'm like, Oh wow, that case has already been covered by five people. And I don't have, you know, I don't have time to go through all their videos and say, wow, what was their level of quality? What do I think of their research today? At that point, I've got so many cases that are suggested. I'm just on to the next and looking for the next one. That's the right fit. So there's a little bit of an unfortunate side effect in that, um, is all coverage the same in this format? I don't personally believe that. I don't think it's the same at all. I think if, mm-hmm. if you get um, someone like Stephanie Harlow, someone like Daniel Hallen, someone like myself, you're going to get a much more detailed and probably complete picture uh, than some of the other creators out there. Uh, mm-hmm. Not not every video is the same, and the audiences aren't the same. So mm-hmm. it's... Um, 
it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's growing pains, I guess is the best way to say it. Mm-hmm. And I, it's weird because I don't want to dissuade people. I want people that are passionate about it to fire up their cameras, to get on their couch, to sit on the edge of their bed mm-hmm. and to learn the lessons that the creators that have been around a little longer have gone through. Like, like I said, man, it was not, it was far from perfect when yeah. I was getting started. Me too. Yeah, of um, course. Yeah. So it's, it's a development that, you know, I, I do appreciate and I want other people to go through. Um, but I, I constantly just kind of struggle with that because every now and then I'll just see a video and I'm just like, Oh no, what are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> what are they doing yeah. here? And honestly, I have been so open uh, whenever someone reaches out and they're like, Hey, um, I'm looking to get started. I don't know what this to use. I don't know what camera to use. What would you do in this type of situation? I have done my best to reply to every single one of those people that, that asks a question on that side, as well as students. I have, I've yeah. done, I can't think of one student interview that I've turned down. Um, if, if there's students that are coming and they're trying to learn about this space, I'm always there to try to help. So, um, Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically trying to be the thing that I was looking for when I got started because I reached out to some of the people that I thought might be helpful. I never heard back. Um, so I've, I've always been very sensitive to that and really trying to, to help the ones that are coming up. But mm-hmm. it's it's tricky. Yeah, it it's is tricky. tricky. Where do you think we're at with the current situation? You know, I think, I, I think you say uh, a lot of uh, what you've said there is true. Uh, you know, wh- wh- what I was going to bring up is that you know, should there be a little more self-policing? You know, is this something yeah. where we just have to let the market kind of sort this all out? Or are what we is what we're doing so important that you can't have people that are just getting involved, you know, once again, because, you know, for example, they just want to have a YouTube channel or something and bringing maybe the rest of us down because we're all kind of, you know, you and I, are lumped in with people like that. Should there be, is there any co- sort of self-policing that we can do or, you know, w- you know, what do you think about that? It's, it's an idea that I've been, um, not just kicking around, but talking to people about for a while. And I'll, I'll tell you, it was really on the heels of the Netflix thing coming out. Cause mm-hmm. the, the Netflix, uh, crime scene show really points a big finger at this space. And, yeah. You know, are there casualties in terms of what we're doing here? Um, but they pointed that finger and they used a very specific term, and that term was web sleuth. And mm-hmm. I don't think that was the right term to use because web sleuths is actually a community, websleuths.com. Yes. That is a highly moderated conversation it about is. these cases. Yes. Um, very, very well handled. Trisha, and once again, not perfect, but Trisha has, has worked for years to turn that into a, a format and a forum that is helpful, as helpful as possible uh, mm-hmm. to these cases. So uh, Trisha and I have spoken a few times. Um, trying to figure out the mechanisms is tough, but we, we're kind of of the same mind that there needs to be some certified badge or something, some type of, you know, I've gone through some little mini training session about being sure that I don't, uh, you know, hurt other people in this way, that I'm citing my sources in this way, that I'm not publicly naming people that I found on Facebook that I think, like, you know, some little curriculum that basically a true crimer could go through and then at the mm-hmm. end 
uh, agree that they're going to abide by a certain set of rules, and if they do, then they get the you know certified by certified web sleuth type mm-hmm. badge, something like that. But um, yeah. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's something we've been talking about. It's like uh, like what they have on Twitter. You have those uh, blue check marks. You yeah. know, for yeah. you know, so you know, a famous person, you know, it's that really that famous person, and not some fake account or something like that. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And, yeah. Just, and basically, as a, as a stamp of the ethics of mm-hmm. the information or, or their presentation and the information that they're presenting. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, as uh, when, I, I think probably when people think about me and I talk about these, usually it's during the live show that I do on YouTube on Wednesday nights, is that you know I never call out uh, any particular show. I, I don't do that. I just talk about what I see. And uh, I've been talking about this for a long time. That does seem to me a lot of people get into this um, to use death and disappearances and, and all these murders as entertainment you know they're going to do that and then they're not trying to solve anything they're not trying to uh forward you know make things better it's just a way to like become a famous person on youtube or a podcast or or whatever else and that irks me to no end um you know and and it's interesting being that you kind of have an entertainment background and i certainly have an entertainment background it's weird that we look at it, what I would say, of course, is the right way, even though we've both done entertainment, and then people who get into this and maybe don't have entertainment backgrounds, they do treat it as entertainment. There's, I don't know if that's some sort of irony or paradox well, or something. Well, all I can hope for in that head yeah. is yeah. that they, they get to the same types of experiences because, yeah, you're right. I was playing around with a platform. I was, I was trying to figure it out and, and trying to see what I could do to be successful in that space. But ultimately what happens is uh, I paid, I think, good respect to a topic yeah. that was recognized by other people. And then I'm being contacted by uh, you know, the family of Brandon Lawson. And mm-hmm. they're crying on the phone about how much, um, how thankful they are that someone cared enough to do all this work and, and pull all this information together and give them another shot of hope. And then I'm being contacted by uh, a, a woman I don't know named Sarah Turney, who is yeah. trying to figure out if her father's responsible yes. for what happened to her sister. Right, Alyssa, and, sure. Yeah, through those experiences, it. It's not. It's your shift from whatever your original course was uh, changes radically. And at, mm-hmm. at this point, you know, I mean, how many donations? I can't even count how many donations we've made this year to, to mm-hmm. numerous causes, directly to GoFundMe's. Not stuff that's tax deductible. Stuff where we're mm-hmm. helping these families directly. Um, it and and to see what other people are doing. I mean, honestly, some of the stuff that. Gray's doing with the Doe Network. I mean, they, they just cracked a major case. He you know, raised thousands of dollars to help them crack that case. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you look for the right content creators out there, if you're really interested in trying to find the people that are helping, we're out here. Yeah, you, you right. can find us. Yeah, right, right. Uh, you know, getting back to, you know, the funny thing is I think, you know, for me, like with Serial, I've never even listened to it. Maybe I've listened to one episode uh, I got into doing podcasting, true crime podcasting, from a totally different um, point of view than that. But it does seem to me like with Serial and people see how popular it was, they got into it just because of that. 
not because they had any inherent uh, interests in solving mysteries or you know going back to their childhood, which is kind of like where I come from. They got into it because oh, this can be popular, so I can be popular. You know, kind of uh, you know kind of thing. So that's interesting. Uh, I, I, you know, it's once again, we, I guess we have to remember that um, in the grand scheme of things, YouTube is not that old. Podcasting, not that old. The, 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 you know, there's going to be a lot, you know, a lot of things that are probably going to happen over the next, you know, several, several years. Um, but it, I, I, I agree with you. In some ways, I think that, you know, we have moved forward. I think the coverage of a lot of these crimes has gotten better. But it's also like being that you're into video, you maybe remember when um, like these three chip cameras came out like in the early 2000s, like the Canon XL1 and everything. And everybody's like, well, filmmaking is going to be democratized. You know, you don't have to go out. You don't have to rent out, go out and rent a 35 millimeter film and, and do all that. Everybody can just do it from their house as well. It didn't make film better. There were just more bad films. And, you know, and so um, that's kind of, I think, where we are a little bit with true crime podcasting and then with YouTube shows is that uh, there's certainly more of them. It's certainly been democratized, but there are, you know, you get a lot of people involved in it, maybe for the wrong reasons. Yep. You know, it's, yep. it's almost too easy, you know, to start something. Maybe, you know, maybe that's what I'm trying to say. But okay. Yeah, but the good thing, the yeah, good thing is if if their heart really isn't in the right place about it, um, mm -hmm. they're going to fall out. They're going to fall out. Yeah. The, the work is, is too heavy. It is uh, heavy. The, the realities of what you're dealing with, I just, unless they're somehow completely disconnected, like they're able to, you know, uh, feel like that it's all just made up content in some way. I, I, I don't know how emotionally you could be that disconnected from it. Mm -hmm. There's, um, there's been several creators that we've seen that have gotten into the space and the, uh, they've wound up with emotional issues that have pulled them out of it. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, there's, you know, I think it goes beyond someone that just wants to, Hey, I'm going to be popular on YouTube. I'm going to start looking at these things. I'm going to start mm -hmm. doing this. They might do that. And maybe that's like at the start of my voyage where I was doing, you know, comedy sketches mm -hmm. or, or song spoofs or stuff like that. I think that they will gravitate towards where they're really supposed to be. And then on the flip side, if they're not hearing from the families, if they're not having those types of experiences where, you know, people are reaching out and saying, Hey, thank you so much for caring. Um, what are they hearing? Are they hearing from the families? Oh my God, that was terrible. Like, you know, there's, there's other factors I think that would move those types of creators along. They're either going to get better or they're going to move out. There's just there's too many different types of content out there. They can yeah. play video games online. They, they, I mean, there's you know they could talk about reality TV show online. There's all these yeah. different pockets. Right, right. Let's move on to this. Uh, your uh, what has your experience been? What's the relationship in the true crime community between what we do and law enforcement? What has been your experience? What's your insight into that? It's um, extremely weak. Uh, there's, there's little examples that we're hearing about here and there of successes. I hope that we hear about more of those or that we have like an event that's kind of like a critical tip point. Like, um, you know, wouldn't it have been great if something like as big as the Gabby Petito case 
wound up being solved by a collaboration that had happened between uh, social media, mm-hmm. and true crime, and law enforcement directly yeah. or something. Like that's, yeah. It's going to take something that big, unfortunately, to really help kick down that door because mm-hmm. uh, law enforcement by its nature, very jurisdictional, uh, yeah. even in terms of their communication with each other, it can be very, very tough. So for them to open up lines of communication with people that are not seen as experts, not seen as experienced, you know, uh, it's, I actually spoke at a cold case conference about this. I was there with Mike Morford and the guys from Crawl Space, and we were, we were trying to talk about this aspect, like how do you, how do you bridge that? How do you um, figure it out so that law enforcement knows, hey, we've got a little tool that we could use here. And it probably wouldn't take a whole lot to, to mm-hmm. enable that tool. I mean, honestly, you know, give us some access to redacted police reports or put us in touch with your public information officer that can kind of vet the information that's coming our way. Like, that's, that's yeah. really where I see the easiest striking point. Why aren't the PIOs uh, contacting us? I've, I've mm-hmm. reached out to PIO organizations. I'm not hearing anything. I can't get a response from these guys. Why? You're, it's literally your job yeah. to be a public information officer. Why aren't you using these tools that, you know, if, if you get something on the uh, 10 o'clock news, your audience is likely over 65 years old. And if it's a story about a college student that was murdered on campus, how helpful is that mm-hmm. going to be exactly? Yeah. Right. That's right. So... Do you, yeah. what, what, why, why do you, what do you think it is? I mean, I know you've asked why, but what, what's your best insight having done, you know, this, you know, working on your YouTube channel for like seven years now, what's your best insight into that? I, I think it's, I think it's the, I think it's the culture of the jurisdiction thing. I, I think mm-hmm. that's a major contributing factor. And then the question of what's the benefit, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, let's say that there was some law enforcement organization that reached out to me in particular. My mm-hmm. audience is largely international, so like I don't have the benefit of being able to tell them, like like our local television station could tell them, well, we're gonna get this covered in the Twin Cities. You know, it's mm-hmm. gonna be in St. Paul, and it's gonna be in Minneapolis, it's gonna be seen in this many million homes, whatever. Um, it's So looking at the logistics of how helpful it is, it, it's already tough. Mm-hmm. The truth, that I'm constantly working with or hoping is at more at play is kind of what we're seeing in the Steve Pankey situation. If this is a guy that was really involved with that crime, he yeah. was all over any piece of information that was coming out about it and crimes like it. Yeah. So, and I, I'm hoping that's not just for the perpetrator. That might also be, well, and honestly, I know this for a fact because I've had situations where this has happened there's people that have information and they're being gravitated they're gravitating to that types of content as well to see oh what's up with that case from 10 years ago with that little info that i've sat on and i haven't put into play oh wow it's still stuck maybe i should reach out to this person and see if Mm -hmm. they can help with this information Mm -hmm. um do you, do you speak to um, investigators very often, actual police officers, detectives very often uh, for putting your program together? Uh, it's happened a handful of times, not, not very often. I have noticed just recently uh, just a slight uptick 
in investigators that are reaching out, and they're usually former investigators on a case. Yeah. They do seem to want to talk a lot more than people who are actually still on the case, right? That's, yes. 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 That's my experience. Definitely. Too. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I will say, though, in 2021, I, I have to admit that maybe I can think of two times uh, so far, although one of those disappearances we've not covered yet, that my experiences this particular year have been positive. Um, but I will tell you, in past years, you know, you file a FOIA, they don't get back to you, or if they send you something, they don't, you know, send you anything of any help, or like you said, you contact people, they don't get back to you, but, uh, and as I tell my audience, I'm not in the law profession, I'm in the information, you know, I'm in the information business. If somebody can't tell me any information, then I don't know, you know, I don't know what we're doing, so a lot of times, of course, as you say, uh, detectives who, who are still on the beat don't tell you anything. Um, so that's a lot of times the reason that I don't contact them. But for this year though, I've been pleasantly surprised. In fact, recently with the New York state police, he actually called me back and then I gave him like an assignment of things I'd like for him to find out for me. And he actually called me back again. So with the, you know, so nobody was more stunned than I was, but, um, you know, maybe that's... as this medium Please. is around, like like you, you pointed out, like this is yeah. a relatively recent development, you know, let this mm-hmm. bake for a little while, and yeah. pretty soon we're going to have investigators that were, uh, you know, before they were police officers, they had a favorite podcast. Yeah, podcast. right, right. That, I think that's an excellent point, and in fact, I was just going to bring up that in that this case I'm trying to cover from down in Key West, Florida that I've not covered yet, I actually did track down a retired uh, detective who was responsible for it at one time, although he was not responsible when it actually happened. And uh, very quickly, you know, when I told him, well, I'd like to send you this information so you can take a look at it. And he's telling me, well, you know, I I don't know how to use a computer that well and everything else. I'm like, and this guy just retired a few years ago. Right. You know, I think, I think, what you're getting to is part of that. Uh, unfortunately, maybe we have too many investigators who are maybe I'm 51 who are older than us who grew up kind of before computers became like a thing. And once they got into their jobs as police officers, they kind of just kind of avoided it. Yeah. You know, so when you tell them that you run it through this podcast and you have a YouTube channel and everything else, they get a little intimidated. Well, I don't know what that is. Right, you right. know, so uh, I think that's a little bit what you're talking about as well. I think you bring up an excellent point that eventually we will start dealing with uh, investigators, detectives who do listen to true crime even before they got into law enforcement. And I, yeah, I, certainly, I mean, I can't tell you how many yeah. how many people reach out to me that are you know pursuing criminal justice degrees or going to school for a particular aspect of of helping with this this problem. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's. It's going to catch up. Yeah. Let's move on to this. Uh, The relationship between what we do and the legal profession. Of course, I know a little bit about that being that I was just in Greeley, Colorado in October. Um, What is your opinion? Being that there are so many programs, so many YouTube channels covering crimes, a lot of them unsolved, why aren't more hosts, why don't more hosts get called to testify in trials when one of their cases eventually does make it to trial? Any, it's rare. You know, any insight yeah. into that? Um, well, I think, at least for 
the type of content that I'm doing, um, you know, I'm really what I consider more of an information aggregator. Like I'm pulling all these different sources and trying to put out one cohesive version of, of the mm-hmm. case and complete uh, version of the case. So ultimately, uh, yes, I'll interview family members. They'll come on. They might have some new aspect that hasn't been released out in the media or something like that. But for me as a host, having some type of knowledge that's going to really help uh, the particular case, I honestly, I'm, I'm not, I think you getting called in is, is the more rare thing that's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, because if there was some information that came out on my show and they were like, Oh, you know, that family member said this and we need that to be presented in court. They're not going to want me sitting on that stand. They're going to want that family member. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about yours is, mm-hmm. uh, you had him saying certain things and, if they wanted to possibly show that his story's changing or impeach him in some way, um, you know, there's, there's a big opportunity for that. So, uh, it's, you know, how often are we talking to persons of interest? How often are you you hearing other shows that are talking to POIs? I mean, Mm -hmm. that in itself is super rare. It is. You you had kind of the perfect mix with this guy's personality Mm because he's got this very attention seeking personality. Um, and you know that's yeah. that's that's where it took you. So yeah, I yeah. think it's pretty rare. I, I don't I don't think we're going to see it a whole lot. Yeah, I I agree with you. Uh, I think I agree with your assessment. So are you saying that you you don't see that changing too much? Even though we do get out there, we maybe do publicize information, maybe that you know hasn't been covered before through whatever means we're doing that. That you don't see that changing too much then in the future. More host or people getting called yeah. to testify you don't see that changing too much no because i could tell you even on even on cases where i've had people reach out to me with information and i've helped put that information into play ultimately i'm just a, a link in the chain i'm just a part of this mechanism mm-hmm. and um you know I, I ran into this really early on i had someone that called in and they had information but they were scared of the situation uh, I said, okay, well, tell me what the info is, and we gotta we gotta reach out to the FBI on this. And I'm speaking to the FBI, and the FBI is like, you know, we've never heard this information before. We're very interested in this, but we gotta talk to the person. Can you please mm-hmm. try to help that person talk to us? Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you play a part in it. Yeah. And ultimately, you make that connection, and then that information, you know, goes directly from the person. Uh, ultimately, at some point, you're gonna fall out of of being a part of the link in that chain totally mm-hmm. fine uh, but I can't imagine any time where there's a trial and they need to prove that connectivity of like mm-hmm. you know you were the guy in the middle that put this put, put this person in touch so mm-hmm. yeah I think it's gonna be really rare okay all right let's move on to this topic what we do compared to what we would call what's a popular term in the 21st century the mainstream media um, and of course, we're going to talk now, going to get back to your uh, situation with Alyssa Lamb, but um, what do you think the relationship is between, you know, of course, the podcasting community, the YouTube community, which you are in, and the more established mainstream media, once again, is CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, the rest of it. Um, what is that relationship uh, right now? It's, uh, I've always felt that it's kind of a weird relationship. I mean, to be perfectly blunt about it, 
there's aspects of the mainstream media that work really, really well. And there's aspects of it that are essentially doing exactly the same thing that we're doing. Um, how many times have you gone looking for information and you found a news article and then it's literally that same article is being repeated on five or six other sites. And that's not anything new. Um, I was recently researching a little bit of a historical case from the 1980s and that's just what would happen with news back then. You know, Associated Press would put out something and it would be reprinted if it was a national story, like it involved a celebrity or something. Literally, those same exact words would be printed all across the country in all these mm -hmm. different publications. Um, what it feels like, and I can tell you from talking to other creators in this space, yeah. is mainstream media takes just about every opportunity they can to try to knock our space. True. Um, to try to point us out as being dangerous, try to point us out as being irresponsible. Uh, and it was weird because even with the Gabby Petito case, we were seeing all these instances where social media was actually being extremely helpful. And uh, there was still this constant tone in terms of the headlines and stuff about, oh, the internet sleuths are doing this, they're doing mm -hmm. that. They think that uh, Brian Laundrie's hand can be seen poking out from yeah. the garden. Yes. Uh, there, and, and then they would lean into the nonsense stuff. and. Is some person that says something dumb on Reddit really uh, the same as Ed Denzel? Surely not. <laughs> you know, yeah, what, what is an internet sleuth versus someone that's just an inter a general internet user? And what's the difference between someone who's a general internet user and an American? Like, we're yeah. all using the internet at this yeah, point. Yeah, right. So That's when right. you're calling out, you know, or trying to group or categorize people like that, like what, what are there in terms of the, the view from mainstream media, there is no distinction. There's no mm -hmm. like rule of, you know, they have to have this many followers or, you know, mm -hmm. be this, yeah. this type of person to be considered a web sleuth or whatever term that they want to slap on it. Do you, do you think um, this so is, uh, are they maybe a little bit scared about what we do. Um, of course, these people who are, uh, once again, interfering in front of the camera, they're making a lot more money than I know than I am, and probably you are doing your show. Is there like a, a fear that uh, this is the way things are going? You know, um, kind of we're making Maybe. the reporting a little more efficient than they can, or, or what do you think? Maybe. Uh, and, and, you know, I'll kind of use the, the Netflix crime scene show as a little bit of an example mm -hmm. of that. I mean, look at before that, what was the best, really comprehensive source for that case? It was some guy on YouTube. Mm -hmm. There was there was two other specials that were done that were little like one hour ID specials on it that were not comprehensive at all. And, and quite honestly, even Crime Scene, they, they limited a lot of the different wacky theories that were out there. They really, and I'm not saying that they should have gone into all that nonsense, but it's, mm -hmm. it's honestly not even that comprehensive for the social commentary that was actually going on at the time. Um, mm -hmm. So there might be some, some aspect to that. Mm -hmm. I think there's also something about the fact that in this space, you have people that are being motivated by wanting to, to change how these things are being presented. Um, I, I can tell you that we, I'm so used to watching content. Like I hate whenever I see, Oh, there's a new 
movie about Charles Manson coming out. Yes. Oh, there's a new yes. John Wayne Gacy this. Oh, there's a new, like, it, it, we, we've been seeing the mm. same stories rehashed and pushed at us that are constantly building up these boogeymen. And thankfully, over the past few years, we're starting to see them catch on to um, being more victim-focused, being more mm. focused on the families. Um, mm-hmm. really, really talking about the realities of, of these tragedies and what these people are facing. Yes. Uh, so it's, yeah. I don't know, I always feel like the mainstream media is like like six to seven years behind uh, where the public is headed. And um, it's, it's going to be interesting because mm-hmm. like I said, you know, Netflix just showed my first day on the job. Are, are we going to get to the point where they're looking into other cases that I've covered since? Uh, I think there's probably a good chance of that. But does it ever speed up to the point of them being able to produce at the same rate as us on YouTube? Nope. Not with the rules they're playing by. Yeah. And and, uh, once again, I'll say to the listeners, um, and so John knows I'm going to say this, being that this isn't the outline that I sent him, you know, regarding the relationship between what we do in the mainstream media. For example, Nancy Grace. Uh, you know, I know, I understand her to be a huge ripoff artist. Now, she is a main, she is certainly in the mainstream media, and she does mainly true crime, but I will tell you, at least a couple of my guests, you know, have told me that, yeah, she used my information and never gave me credit. Um, you know, no, but she is, I would say, the number one true crime person in the United States. Am I off on that? But she'll go to CrimeCon, of course. I don't go to CrimeCon, but she'll go to CrimeCon. Oh, I've seen her there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, an, another example that I would use is what happened between myself and 48 Hours. They used a small portion of my interview with Steve Pankey, never contacted me. Now, I know there are fair use rules that exist, mm-hmm. but I didn't even know that they didn't even email me to say, hey, you know, we're going to use, we're going to do this. And it's going to be a minute and everything else. It was one of my assistants who just happened to be watching on that Saturday night. It's like they think that, oh, we exist so they can put programs together. <laughs> you, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? I realize there's fair use and I'm not going to, uh, yeah. you know, I, I was critical of that. But you did think they could at least, I'm easy to find, you know, send me an email saying, you know what, uh, we used it. It's going to be on tonight. That would be nice, but I, I honestly, I got to tell you, I, I can't even count at this point how many how many times I've popped up on things I've never been given yeah. a heads up on, um, and it's, you know, it, it, the fair use rolls both ways, right? I mean, when I'm doing my mm-hmm. research for these stories, I'm looking at a lot of these sources, not necessarily mm-hmm. like a Dateline or a 48 Hours sometimes, but, um, you know, the same companies are the same ones that own the smaller publications that we're leaning onto for, for the research that we're looking into, so... You know, I get it. It goes both ways. Although, admittedly, in every video I put out, I've got every source listed in the description box. So, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> they're getting credit. Yeah, and, and once again, they did put my name up on there. They had the logo up there. Uh, it just was kind of funny because I don't, you know, I, I have a reputation. I don't like other people using my material. You know, I, and in fact, I got in trouble with this last year. Kind of in trouble. But somebody wanted to use an interview I did for the Tyler Sice disappearance that I covered because his sister Jessica um, is no longer with us. And I said, no, you can't have it. Because I know, once again, and this is going to lead into our, you know, 
our talk with about Alyssa Lamb again, but I never know what they're going to do with it. They may cut it up. Uh, I do two-hour interviews for a reason. So um, so I get a little upset when people dice them up, you know, without yeah. my permission I, and everything. I, totally, I completely understand that. That's, that's one of those benefits that I love about the format that we have. Like, you know, if, mm-hmm. if I've got a family member, I don't need to turn them into sound bites. I don't need to cut it down to the 30 seconds of them crying. We can give mm-hmm. them the 30 minutes, the 45 minutes, the yep. full hour, whatever they need to yes. express everything. Right, right. So I got, you know, and I still once in a while get an email. You wouldn't let this other program use your interview? And the answer is always no. For for 48 (laughs) hours, anybody else, headline news, Fox News, the answer is always no. Don't ask. I know you're going to probably do it anyway, but but the answer is no. Uh, So this moves us to, um, and I want to thank you, John, although we can't necessarily get into it too deep. I appreciate the, the advice you gave me. Uh, about a month ago regarding somebody who wanted to use my interview with Steve Pankey. And I appreciate it. Thank you. So using that as a springboard, let's get into what exactly did go on. You, of course, as you've already talked about, you covered Alyssa Lamb's death. And you got involved uh, with this Netflix program. And then something happened. Why don't you explain all of that and so we can talk about it? Sure. Um you know, I, I, they reached out. It was a company I hadn't heard of before, but they told me who the director was, and I was very familiar with his work, Joe Berlinger. Uh, you know, he's honestly, I consider he's, he's one of the best true crime doc- directors that there are out there. Uh, he did the Paradise Lost series, and one of the things I really appreciated about the Paradise Lost series was that there's three movies in that series, and each one looks at the crime uh, and, and kind of looks at a person of interest in a very different way. Uh, so I, I, I got the feeling of, hey, this is someone that's really going to look at this situation and try to look at it from all angles and, and present what they find here. Um, so they flew me out. It was literally before COVID, I think uh, just a month or two before we figured out what, what COVID was. Uh, and we did the interview and... You know, they're telling me, it's great, it's great, it's great. And towards the end of the interview, they ask me, uh, they're like, did you know anything about someone named Morbid? And uh, I literally said, oh, you mean the guy that was going around trying to get attention for his music by, you know, attaching mm-hmm. himself to this Elisa Lamp thing? Yeah, I looked into it for about two seconds, and then mm-hmm. I said, there's nothing here. And mm-hmm. I never reported on it. Okay. And when I said that... Um, it just, I don't know, I, I kind of got this weird moment in the room. That, that, that's all I can say. Like, there was something, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know if they weren't expecting me to say that, or I, I have no idea. Okay. But that, that was it. Um, so, we wrapped filming, and, you know, it was it was all good. Everything seemed fine. Um, the show came out. I was really excited, because, you know, there's a trailer. The trailer comes out. I'm in the trailer. Uh, and then I start watching the episodes and I had only recorded with them for, I think about four hours or so. And it's a four part series and I'm in every single episode. Like they got a lot out of, out of that four hours of recording that they wound up using. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was just, it was surreal. And like, I I literally, I couldn't sleep. Like I woke up cause it was going to be available at like two o'clock in the morning here. 
Mm-hmm. So I woke up at two o'clock in the morning and just watched it uh, right from start to finish. And, you know, there's a little weirdness when you're watching something like that and you're like, oh, they took these two sentences and kind of edited them together. Yeah. And they're saying that like, okay, you know, I, I get that they need to do that. Um, oh, they're taking this one comment I made, but they removed all of the conditions that I made around that comment. And okay, I get why they do that. Um, so uh, honestly, I was completely fine with everything. And there was this weird thing I was noticing where they were almost trying to categorize all these internet people as this term web sleuths, web sleuths, web sleuths, web sleuths. Uh, mm-hmm. And all of a sudden there's a teaser kind of at the end of the third episode for the fourth episode. And this guy morbid is on there. And, uh, he said something to the effect that, you know, the web sleuths were coming after me. And at that moment, I was just like, oh, no. Like, mm-hmm. they, you know, is this is this a dramatic narrative that they have strung together? You know, they pulled mm-hmm. all these people from YouTube together. Uh, they pulled this other guy who is nowhere. I don't consider him a web sleuth at all. His, his name's John Sobani. He's someone, he helped produce a memorial video with me on Elisa's case. He was doing some documentary stuff that he was working on with Elisa's case. Mm-hmm. They kind of lumped us all into this categorization and then all of a sudden, it was like the web sleuths were the villain for this new story that was gonna be told in the fourth episode about this musician that happened to stay at the Cecil Hotel a year before what happened to Elisa. And that the web sleuths all came after him and he almost ended his own life over it. Um, there was no clarification about any of the timing and the way that they had shot my interviews. Um, I was, t- they wanted me to talk about it as if it was actually happening. So the, the tone of everything I was saying was like, I was actually there at the time that Elisa was going through this. And like I told you earlier in this interview, yeah. I didn't catch on to her story until well, like a year or more after that. Right. Right. So this stuff that Morbid went through was actually at the same time that this was going on with Elisa. Uh, and, you know, people did send me some screenshots of stuff that he was saying. He was going to Elisa Lamb groups and basically saying things uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, like kind of like, you know, kneel to your master like type stuff. Uh, almost like he was just trying to rile up you know, the attention around this. Huh. Uh, but... I, you know, after the fact, I went back and I was looking for articles and I saw on a music blog somewhere that he did say that, you know, all of a sudden all these internet detectives were coming after him. That's what he called them back in mm. 2013. Okay. So it sucked because, you know, now you have this kind of dramatic narrative that seems like it's been made just for the show. Of course. And, uh, not quite to a legal point. Like, you know, I don't think you could actually string together, oh, look, they really point the finger at one of you in particular here, but there was just this general kind of assumption that we were all the web sleuths, we were working on it at the time it was happening, and this guy went through severe trauma because of that. Um, So what's interesting is I thought they were going to get to this whole message about kind of that risk of, you know, looking into content like this naming a person of interest that maybe isn't a real person of interest. Like there, there's a really important conversation to be had there. Yeah. The tone of it was just kind of played down to the point of just like, wow, isn't the internet dangerous? And 
I don't think anyone expected, even them putting together this dramatic narrative, um, that it essentially caused the same problem that, that they were trying to call out as an issue. <laughs> because now, right. everyone that was watching that and feeling bad for what Morbid had gone through, all of a sudden had categorized this group of people that were in this Netflix special as being the ones that did that to him, and they mobilized against us. Now, let's be super fair and honest about this. What Morbid, if, you know, anyone being stressed out like that, terrible. You're right. You know, and, and quite honestly, if I would have known, if I was active at the time, which I wasn't, but if I would have known that he was going through something like that, I would have been the first person to say, come on my channel, let's get this right. information out. Of course let's you were. all this out. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course. But we, I didn't have that chance because I wasn't even reporting on this thing yet. Mm -hmm. So uh, effectively, we have a much larger audience because we're talking Netflix. I think I heard on the numbers recently that the first month it came out, it was seen in 35 million homes or something oh like that. Oh my gosh. Uh, and there is a section of that audience that now thinks that we're the villains that almost made this guy take his own life. And they come after us. They come after Stephanie. They come after me. Uh, I was told that I'm the one that actually killed Elisa. Uh, it was called a, rap a rapist, a murderer, um, all kinds of stuff. So, uh, you know, uh, what does what do they wind up doing about it? Uh, Joe Berlinger shows up on a Netflix podcast uh, a few weeks after and makes a statement and is just very, very clear in the statement. We know that the pers the people that we showed in this had absolutely nothing to do with what Morbid went through. So I took that statement and I basically just put it as a signpost. Like if, it's still there. If you go to lordnards.com right now, mm -hmm. it's the first thing you see. Did we go after Morbid? You click on the link and it's the 90 seconds of Joe saying, you know, they had nothing to do with what he went through. Um, so it's, it was, it was rough. It was really rough to have something where you're so excited, like, you yeah. know, being a kid that was raised in Southern California and like the whole entertainment aspect to your point, like, what are we really there for? Yes. Like, right. Uh, you know, I had finally done it. Right. Okay. Now I'm on Netflix during a pandemic. Right. Mm hmm. Yes. And I'm in, I'm in the trailer, like all those, all my little boy kind of fantasies are like being ticked off. And then you get to this one point of episode four and it's just like, it just undoes everything else emotionally. It really just leaves you at the point where it's like, you know, like if, if they had come around, if, if I knew what it was mm -hmm. going to come out as what I have done it, uh, it's, it's more of a question now than it was before. My thing with Elisa's story was always that I was afraid of people doing the spooky storytelling aspect. Yeah, yes. And I was going to try to participate in as many of those conversations as possible to pull it back to bipolar disorder, medication issues, yes. the real tragedy that that, that story is about. Um, and they do, they do get, to, they get to the door, basically, on that conversation in crime scene. I really wish that the fourth episode would have been spent going through that door, you know, uh, mm -hmm. really having some doctors talk about what was going on there, right. you know, comparing the medication that they saw in her autopsy with the medication that she had been prescribed. Was she taking it properly? What are some side effects of people that don't take these things properly? What are side effects of some of those medications straight up? Cause psychotic episodes could have been one of those side effects. Um, 
there's, you know, it's, but ultimately I I feel proud that they did Elisa's story pretty well. I think that it was, um, I think it actually took away a little bit from Elisa's story to tell Morbid's story the way that they did because Elisa, what, what is clear is Elisa believed in the internet. She believed in that as a mechanism for finding people that she could connect mm. to and relate with. Yeah. And then ultimately what you have is the other side of that coin. And hey, what did I say about Joe Berlinger? You know, he, he's going to look at these things from all ways. Uh, the other side of that coin is you have a group of people, a community that has been pulled together, you know, seeking justice for Elisa that then turns on one particular person who had nothing to do with it. Mm. What do you, I mean, did you ever get to have a one-on-one conversation with whoever got you involved in the program in the first place and ask them, why did you do that? That was not factual. Why did you do that? Um, not a one-on-one conversation. Uh, there was regular communication. And to be more than fair, they were very, uh, they were they're trying to be as helpful as they could be. And... Uh, in, in regular contact, checking it just to see how it was going. And the truth of it was, you know, for every, for every 10 people that were coming to me, leaving a comment, nine of them were appreciating it. Mm -hmm. And there was one, like, you know, like 10%, like it, it wasn't, it wasn't overwhelming. Um, it was tough to go through, but thankfully I had gone through this before. I had several different points in my YouTube growth where all of a sudden I would get a pop of new people that really didn't understand my content or know it all that well, watched like one episode and, you know, wanted to come at me about something. Like every time uh, I would hit these levels of someone on a big channel would mention my channel, you know, I'd get this new rush of people and there would be this big kind of backlash. So I had kind of gone through some wars on social media before and when this one came up, I was just like, oh, really? I thought I was past these games. All right, mm-hmm. go back and play this one out. Um, so mm-hmm. ultimately, uh, Netflix was, I think, as helpful as they could have been with it. Uh, would it have been nice for the platform where Joe made that comment to have been a little bigger? Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, right, right. And would it have been nice? Here, here's another interesting aspect you have all the pieces of that conversation out there that you could find for yourself publicly. Did any of the mainstream media publications that were talking about the crime scene show, uh, talking about what idiots we were in the crime scene show, did any of them look into that aspect and report on, Mm -hmm. Oh, Hey, we just found out that that, that something that we thought was true because of how this was presented. Yeah. Yeah. Why, so why do you think they, I mean, they did it because they needed a dramatic ending to the series. Is that your insight? Uh, I mean, because obviously it was not factual. This wasn't like an editing mistake. This isn't something like a continuity error in some, you know, Marvel movie. This is something a little more, that's a mistake. This is something a little more serious than that. They just thought, well, we got to, we got to finish this way. You know, what, what, what what do you think? I can only, because obviously I don't have any insight mm. into what made their decisions. Yeah. So speaking about it as a former documentary reviewer, someone that has just looked at structure of storytelling for most of my life. Yeah. Uh, my assumption is they got to the end and they knew they didn't have an ending because they had to end 
at the same point of where most people that look at that through the lens of reality would, that this mm-hmm. is a tragedy uh, that this young woman went through, some type of emotional breakdown, maybe medication was a contributing factor in that, maybe it wasn't. So how do you essentially name a show crime scene where you don't have a crime? Yeah. And how, what do you do there? And all of a sudden, uh, you know, Bill, mm-hmm. I mean, I told you, mainstream media focused on creating boogeyman. Yes. That's exactly right. what they did. Right. They literally created a boogeyman, something yeah. that does not. Now, I don't want to right. say, and this is important to keep in lens of our conversation, and we've touched on this before, too. Yeah. Uh, internet detectives in 2013, what is that? Are you talking about some commenter, someone that's just on some, you know, thread somewhere talking about morbid being a bad person or, or something like that? Uh, is it someone with a platform? Because in the context of telling that story in 2021, you've got uh, a very different view on what true crime is, what these platforms on are. You know, people that thought I was part of that came to YouTube and go, oh my God, this guy has 150,000 subscribers. Mm. He turned all those people loose on that poor guy. <laughs> right. You know, I, and yeah. I get it. I, yeah. I get that that's the assumption you would make. But in 2013, I might have had 100 subscribers. Mm-hmm. And we weren't talking about true crime. We weren't even there. So yeah. it's, uh, yeah. It's, but to answer your question, I from what I believe, just looking at the structure of the story and what happened there, yeah, they needed a, a final act. Like, without that. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where... I really, it helped me realize the benefit of doing the content that we're able to do because the ending I would have seen for that would have been, hey, let's have a real conversation about bipolar disorder. Let's start putting together some type of conversation where families that have sat through these three episodes get to episode four and by the end of that episode, maybe they're saying, hey, you know what? I need to check in with my daughter. Right. I need to check in with my son. Because I'm seeing some things here that seem kind of similar to what I've what I just watched. Um, mm. So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the big question: Would you ever be involved in something like that again? Um, it's it it would be different. Uh, I I wouldn't say no. Um, there would certainly be some different conditions around it, and mm. I you know I worked in the legal departments at 20th Century Fox. I knew the types of things that they would head off. Like, even if you wanted someone to license a clip of The Simpsons or something like that, like, they would get a copy of the script. They would know exactly how that was going to be used, the context of the joke that was going to be made around the clip that they were using. And if they didn't agree with it, they would just say no. No. Um, So what was weird about this was I was in the mode of trying to help this Elisa conversation and just trying to be as helpful as possible. I helped that production in every way that I could. Yeah. I helped them in terms of making contacts with other people, uh, other information that they asked about, giving them rights to use my footage. I, I literally, and the only thing that I got paid for was the clips that they used. And I told them I didn't want to accept any money for that, so I had to make a donation mm-hmm. to the uh, to NAMI, the National Mental Institute. Um, so it's, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write it off. I would just say it would be different. Mm, yeah. my, my lawyer would be a lot more involved right from the start. Right. Man, what a headache, John. 
You know, it's just, yeah, of course I, you're doing, you know, we all do a lot of work anyway. And then on top of that, somebody else is giving you more work. Something that yeah, you have to respond that, that to. That was the thing that, that did suck because it did take <laughs> a lot of focus and time. And, you know, the first week felt pretty crazy. Like, uh, mm-hmm. it was just, you know, a lot of trying to respond to people and, you know, um, trying to tell them the actual facts. It, I, I kind of had my canned answers right off the bat, which was, hey, look, look at the look at the timestamps for the videos. They didn't even report on this stuff until after, you know, two years after what he went through. And look at the videos because there's no mention of him in any of them. Mm-hmm. Right. So, right. So that's what I could do. Wow. Uh, has that kind of died down now? I mean, I, like you oh, said, yeah. it, it, it's, you know, we've, we're moved on from that. I know you say once in a while, but you've kind of moved on. They've moved on. Everybody's moved on pretty much. That was a huge, huge lesson about it too, Ed. <laughs> it's just <laughs> yeah. the public focus, man. It moves and it, just, oh, it moves so quick. Yes. And oh, yeah. honestly, I've never, I, there was one time that I've been recognized for being in that. I, I feel uh-huh. like I've honestly been recognized more for being on YouTube than uh-huh. for, for being in the Netflix special. Oh, good. Okay. Gotcha. Wow. All right. So, listeners, if you're wondering why uh, I always say no to everything, and I've explained it many times on the live show and elsewhere, this is one of those reasons. Uh, you know, this is one of those reasons. The answer is always no, and this is also the reason I've been approached about doing, you know, missing persons program and everything else. And I, I'm sure I come across as being the biggest prick in the world because I tell them, well, I'm going to have to have final okay on anything that's aired and everything else. Otherwise, I'm just not interested. And, you know, yeah. I've, I've said yeah. that to at least a couple TV producers over the last five years. And that's the reason why what you're talking about, you know, you're talking about here because this is like a nightmare scenario for me, you know, to, yeah. hear, to hear what you've gone through. You're doing good work. And then this kind of thing happens because they need a certain kind of ending. And so they're sitting in the editing room and we're going to twist these words and we're going to do this. And it's not going to cause any problems for us, but it sure as heck is going to cause a problem for somebody else. You know, and they and, and I have to say, being that I was a filmmaker one time, they probably knew that they they had to have been able to predict that. Right. Yeah. That's a hard thing to to kind of still get my head around. Like, were they aware of this or not? Like, when they were sitting there watching it, did they, you know? And then the mm. other thing is like, hey, you know, Ron Howard's a producer on this. Like, does Ron Howard watch this and go, oh my god, that John Morgan guy's a jerk? Like that, you <laughs> yes. know that. <laughs> yes, that gets me a little bit. Yes, uh, as I've stated, you know, the reason I, I tend to be so, uh, like I say, prickish when it when I, these things have happened is that. I realize that it's it's not their rep. If we do some sort of disappearance program, like a pilot or something, it's my reputation that's on the line, not theirs. They'll they'll be doing this, and if this pilot doesn't work out, they'll move on. They'll be doing a documentary on Britney Spears or something. You know, I'm the one who does missing persons for a living. I'm the one that's going to have to live with this. They aren't, so they don't. They don't. In the end, it's just a gig for them. You know, yep. you know, you being an entertainment. Uh, myself being in entertainment one time, you at one time, me at one time, we know how that can be. Everybody's always looking for their next gig. You know, what's going to be the next production I'm going to get on? But it's you and I who are actually doing this every day. And uh, this this isn't a gig for this. This is real work, and we're not looking for other things to do. 
And so that's, you know, that's why, like I said, this is why I always react the same way when, when these things happen. So I think uh, for the listeners, for any other true crime hosts uh, who are listening to this, I think John's uh, experience is a very good example of why you should always be very cautious about getting involved in anything, especially when pretty much all of it's out of your control. The intention, of course, is great, and it's on Netflix and everything, but you, the, the future of what you're doing is in somebody else's hands, and you never know yeah. what can happen to that. But I think, John, I think that you've recovered nicely, so, but it, uh, you know, once again, for a while there, it's, it's really more crap than you really deserve, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what are you working on now? What are, what what uh, we're doing this interview on November eighteenth of twenty twenty one. What do you uh, have upcoming, and and what are you looking for in twenty twenty two as far as your channel? Uh, a little more of the same, but of of this new like you know, uh, crime scene really gave me a bit of a new focus uh, in particular because I I was having some weird feelings about covering cases where I wasn't really in contact with a family member mm-hmm. or a close friend that was, you know, connected to the family or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it never really, I never had any instance where it really like blew up on me or anything like that. Or, you know, someone got super mad, like, why are you talking about this? But there was just something in me that was like, you know, I would feel better if I was in having some form of direct contact. Uh, and through that, like I mentioned earlier, it's led to more interviews, uh, more connectivity. I mean, the, the Maya Miliete case has been yeah. one that I've been tracking all year. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've been in contact with her sister, Mary Chris, all year. I think Mary Chris and her husband, Richard, are amazing. I think they're mm-hmm. uh, shining examples of what a family can do in a missing persons case. And just they inspire me to know that. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really just about continuing down that mode of closer contact with the families through the production experience, including their voices in a lot of these episodes as well. And, um, trying to help as many people as we can. Okay. Great. Any final words before we complete this interview, John Lorden? No, just, uh, really appreciate it. Ed. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, outside of that, I just want to say, I really appreciate your friendship all yeah. enjoy whenever yeah, I see very a message welcome. come in from you and I'm very proud of the work that we've done together yeah. on the Jason Landry case yeah. I'm really hoping that we see something come through for Kent on that uh, yeah. and I'm really proud of Kent because I'm seeing yeah. how many efforts he's taking uh, and more media that's that he's participating in to try to raise exposure to that case so uh, yeah. yeah just really appreciate you uh, you too uh, John you're very kind Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been, um, it's hard to believe it's been like a year and a half since uh, I was on your game show. That was May of 2020. That was such a, that was, you know, I have to admit once in a while I still go back and watch that. I, I would admit that. I, I'm, I'm vain like that. Um, but uh, that was really fun. We had a, a lot of fun with that. So I appreciated you inviting me. I don't really think if we knew each other that would before that. So when it came out of the blue that you invited me on there, uh, that was a real yeah. treat. And so I, I appreciated that. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, great talking to you. Thanks for being on this very special episode of Unfound. And that was my November 18th, 2021 interview with John Lorden, creator and host at Lorden Arts on YouTube. 
I thank him for joining me and all of you on this special episode. In return, John interviewed me about my involvement in the Steve Pankey trial. That conversation is now up and running on John's channel. Please check it out. And that's the program. If you found it informative, please go to the app that you use to listen to Unfound and give this podcast a nice review. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound.